you have fully vacant units on your property that you have mothballed until next semester? If you do, I bet you've thought to yourself, we should list those on Airbnb for game day weekends or for parents visiting their kids. Maybe you're in a college town like Austin or Raleigh or Tallahassee, and your city has large festivals and not enough hotel rooms. You know you could lease those units on a nightly or a weekly basis. Providing short-term rentals on platforms like Airbnb can provide a great source of ancillary income. But it takes some, uh, all right, excuse me, it takes a lot of organization. There's the additional setup of providing linens and coffee makers and all the little things that a short-term tenant will expect. Then there's the regulatory and tax issues that could require additional work. More importantly, there's the time and labor to market on all the multiple platforms, handle the reservations and cancellations, the cleaning, and then there's the bookkeeping. All of this turns into a big distraction from the main job at hand, which is operating and leasing your property. That's where Vector Travel comes in. These guys know the short-term rental industry and they know how to relieve all of those burdens from the property manager. And best of all, they've become experts in how to do that with student properties. They understand the complexity of mixing travelers with college students. They know it so well, they can quickly identify if a student property is not going to be a good fit for their program. So if you have vacant units, reach out to Vector Travel and have them do a free, no obligation assessment to determine if enrolling your vacant units in their program will be beneficial. Go to VectorStays.com forward slash SHI. Fill out a quick form to receive more information. You will also get the first month service fee waived by going to that specific landing page. Again, that's VectorStays.com forward slash SHI. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we put you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. And joining me today is the great and wonderful Greta Dare. I'm never going to get tired of that, ever. I love it. <laughs> I want to make sure my co-hosts know how special they are. <laughs> no, you're great. I, in fact, I got I got some compliments in the past week or two. You're like, yeah, Greta's, Greta's great. You got to have her on there more often. Oh, <laughs> Felt like that was their way of saying, you really suck at this, Wes. Nobody's <laughs> saying that. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. Can you believe this has been almost, this summer, it'll be five years that we've been doing this? No. I thought about that one day and I was like, because I was telling somebody about it and I'm like, holy shenanigans. Yeah. That's, that's definitely what I was just thinking in my head. Holy shenanigans. Uh, I was like, this has been going on for freaking ever. Also definitely said freaking. And I was like, this is, this is insane. Yeah, no. And, and our numbers are good. They, they continue to, to grow. And, you know, this was just something that I did to kind of help my consulting business and it's, you know, it's turned into its own thing. So thanks so much to you guys for the support. If you want more information on what we're doing, always check us out at studenthousinginsight.com. Also, if you're in the industry and you missed the you missed one of the last podcasts, 
make sure that you also go to your app store on your mobile device and download the SHI Connect app, which is, it launched April 1st. We've kind of just done a soft launch of it and intend to get everybody on it going into the summer um, because I think it's a... It's a fabulous tool that we'll get more into on, on how we're using it, but we've got some great contributors on there that are posting some uh, some very insightful posts about what they're going through kind of in their day-to-day uh, as student housing professionals. So, And and we're all there just to, to help each other. So make sure that you go and download that. All right. So this is our next installment of our uh, profiles series that I've been doing this year, where we're talking to folks who have been very influential in the student housing industry uh, throughout their career. And uh, if you if you haven't listened to some of the other ones, the first one he did was Julie Bonin, the COO with Asset Living, uh, which was just fantastic. Um, in February, we did one with with Miles Orth, who's the um, COO at campus apartments. And then uh, last month we did, in March, we did Brandon Smith, who uh, hasn't been in the industry as long <laughs> as, as Miles and Julie, but they uh, he's, he's the um, VP of operations, senior VP of operations, I believe it is, at Tailwind Group, which is, they broke into the top 25 this year and doing some really awesome things um, from a growth perspective and from a management perspective. So, so yeah, go back and listen to those. But for this one, we've got a real industry veteran. He says he's retired from student housing, but I don't know how true that really is. He will also be the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award at uh, Interface this year. And that is Mike Moran with the Capstone Companies. It was originally Capstone Development Core. If you've if you've been in this industry a decent amount of time, you've probably heard the Capstone name. There's Capstone on Campus Management. There's uh, Capstone Development Partners. There's Capstone Real Estate Investments. There's Capstone Collegiate Communities, which is now just Capstone Communities. And all of those came from the original Capstone Development Core that that Mike started. And I can't wait for everybody to listen to this because Greta, I, did you know Mike before you actually listened to this? Yeah, you were sitting there, you're building up that and I was sitting there and I was like, and if you're anything like me, it's really, really okay to openly admit that you may not. And I'm really, I'm sorry, Mike. It's really okay to admit that you didn't actually know who Mike was, and <laughs> I, I hated thinking that. And I hated. I'm I'm so sorry. It was you know obviously we're going to be at Interface next week. I, this is probably going to be released after that, but you know going into it, I saw you know I knew that he was receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award. So the very first thing that I did was you know look him up and find out who he was and find out everything I could because I was like, how do I not know who this person is? This is so odd to me, especially when you're like, if you've been in this industry for any amount of time, I'm like, sir, I have first off, <laughs> but I didn't know. And that made me feel ridiculous because that's that hasn't happened before, you know? And well, that's one, was, that's, that's one reason I wanted to do this series because I, I think there's, 
you know, there's a history there that, uh, you know, I'm kind of the bridge of like, you know, I came into this industry in the late 90s. And, and Greta, you could put your mic on mute so you don't have to laugh <laughs> out loud this time. Because <laughs> we, we were speaking earlier and Greta realized, I, I think, how old I am. <laughs> the fact that I got started in this industry in the late 90s. And so there's been... And, the 1990s. (laughs) And it's, uh, in a lot of ways, I kind of see myself as the bridge between some of the original, you know, call them godfathers of of student housing and, you know, the the folks that are, that are on the ground today. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a portion of that that has been told to me during my career that I feel like everybody can actually get a lot of benefit out of, you know, to understand how P3 projects and student housing came about, which is something that we're going to get into because Capstone was in a lot of ways kind of created the the vehicle for the P3 projects that you see so many developers doing with universities now. So I kind of give him a lot of, a lot of credit for that. And he'll get into into the details on that, but yeah, that's that's who we're segmenting today. And I, I, I'll just tell you, make, make sure you've got time to listen to this. It's it, it, Mike shares about an hour, ten minutes with us, and you know it's a long podcast. I get it, and I think a lot of people may say that's too long for me to to listen to, Wes. Hey, I could have broke this out into, you know, three or four podcasts, but I, you know, if if you really want to understand kind of especially the second half of this cuz he kind of spends the first half talking about how he got into student housing and then the second half of it is really what he's done in student housing. I think that's the most important part. Not just what he's done for student housing, but also kind of the legacy he's he's left behind. So so yeah, I think that's that's uh I actually I'm really glad that you said that because I think that you know obviously all jokes about the late 90s aside <laughs> but <laughs> see now that the laughs coming back but no I I think that that's the thing about any industry and I loved loved finding out that the 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 whole P3 concept kind of originated with this because any industry any if it's the music industry if it's the marketing whatever industry it is and this is our industry right understanding the key players and the history of where we all came from and how we got to this point is crucial for all of us to know and understand and hearing the actual voices be having this opportunity to hear the the story from the voices directly from the mouths of the people who were there for it it's i it is it's incredible and it's exciting and it's it is really really great and i'm grateful to be able to do it and to to understand it and so you know thanks for that honestly yeah yeah well We'll, we'll get uh, we'll we'll play the interview here in a second, but just because we've got a couple things that we just want to make sure everybody is aware of, announcement wise. But again, I think this is kind of a perfect you know uh, that opening of welcome to Student Housing Insight, where we're putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. Uh, this is definitely one of those guys that I wouldn't say he breathed life into student housing. <laughs> But he he certainly evolved student housing, and um, 
uh, you know, it, it's it's an important voice to to listen to and kind of understand the history. So, yeah, we'll get into that here in just a second. But I wanted to follow up with everybody and because uh, I think this is probably the first episode after we've had our first shop talk. That's right. So for those that haven't been following the uh, little bit of background on shop talk, one, it stands for student housing operations. That's what shop stands for. Uh, but there was a, a zoom call that was basically started at the onset of the pandemic in March of 2020, where uh, industry leaders like Chris Richards and miles Worth, Jen Cassidy, uh, Dan Aldersdorf came together and said, look, we got to, we got to talk about some of this stuff that's going on that we're challenged with right now. You know, what are we doing for our employees? What are we doing for, uh, you know, residents that, you know, are being told to go home by their university. And those zoom calls, those zoom meetings were very instrumental and they, they happen kind of once a week, sometimes twice a week <laughs> through the, uh, through the first you know, few months of, of the pandemic and then uh, ultimately became something that that we did on a on a monthly basis. And it was really just the I would say C-suite and executives within the industry, as well as some you know service providers that were asked to come in and because um, there were folks like Leap uh, that I'll, I'll throw a shout out to that were really instrumental and in, in helping us kind of curve some issues that could have come up with, with international students. And so. Love you leap. (laughs) (laughs) And, and if you don't know who leap is, go search Michael Davies on LinkedIn. He's a great guy and he'll be at interface. I'm sure he'll be glad to, to meet up with you. But anyway, that, that kept evolving and, and we saw a real need for it to, to a, you know, make sure we're all on the same page with what's going on with with pre-leasing and how we're tracking that, because that was going to be very important for investors and lenders, as well as collections. And so there's kind of structurally some things already built into, into that meeting that, you know, happen each time that I think is very good for, for everybody. The biggest thing, you know, with that kind of being the national and regional review from, from College House on the uh, pre-leasing information that, that they're tracking. But uh, Miles, uh, him and I talked, you know, during our interview back in February and, you know, he said, look, Wes, we're really trying to get some more content if there's something you know, you can help us with there. That would be fantastic. And conversation just kind of grew from there. And we said, you know, why don't we do something with it? Do you want to expand this audience? And the leadership committee just basically said, yeah, we want to do that. And and so now it's really open to anybody. Um, I strongly suggest anybody that is, you know, property manager and above or, or community manager, site manager and above register for this and and be involved on as many as you can be. It's a hour long webinar, nothing sales pitchy or anything like that. We want to make sure that it's, you know, very straightforward and data driven and as well as, you know, get some kind of personal insight into, into things. But we had our first one and Greta, I'm just interested. I mean, this was kind of your, it wasn't your first time on, on this call, but you know, this was the, the first one that has been branded shop talk and, and kind of, under our umbrella here at Student Housing Insight, 
what were your thoughts? Well, first and foremost, actually, I'll give you I'll give you the feedback on that, and then I'm going to say something else. But I absolutely loved it. I love, love, loved it. And to the point where anybody that I knew, because obviously I, my phone was inundated with all the notifications of people signing up, uh, which I will come back to. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so I knew the people that had signed up and anyone that I knew that hadn't, I was like, you have to get signed up. This was so fantastic. I'm very excited for the next one. And Wes, I talked to you obviously right afterwards and you're like, are you just saying that? No, I wasn't just saying that. I, I genuinely loved it. I loved that we could see everybody. I loved the platform that you chose. I felt like it really showcased all of the information. I really loved, um, cause I wasn't sure honestly about the whole choosing one market and focusing on a market. I was like, is that going to be limiting? Is that going to be not interesting? But it was really interesting. I loved seeing, you know, all of that, like Jordan and Saad and, you know, all of these people from these operating, all of the operating companies that had projects in this specific market, and them giving their feedback on the market. Like, that was really fantastic. Yeah, it, it just because I don't, maybe I didn't catch it, but what, what Craig is referring to is in addition to re- reviewing the national and the regional, we, we are also doing a deep dive into a market. And so for this, for this first one, we actually did one back in March. We did, we did Penn State. And then for this one in April, we did, uh, we did Gainesville, Florida. And, you know, if you don't know about Gainesville, there's a ton of stuff coming on board. And, uh, yeah, so we wanted to have a discussion about who's involved with those with those new deliveries and, you know, how that's going to impact the the market. So that was great. Then we also did a kind of a 15 minute segment of just educating everybody on ESG. If you don't know what ESG is, just go Google it. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, make your fingers do the, tw- the work in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, this podcast is long enough as it is. <laughs> so, but go, go look that up and probably the best way. And it was echelon energy that kind of, you know, gave the presentation on it because there's so many, uh, you know, there's so much, of those kind of things that I don't think we get to even the companies within within the industry don't get to talk to everybody about it. So we did a 15 minute segment on that. Jen Cassidy uh, also announced a, a uh, mental health initiative that that she's working on with some folks. Love and that. Yeah, yeah. And so if you if you missed it, go back to shoptalk.info. And we've got the recordings there. The recordings will always be there. And go ahead and register. And that way, we'll make sure that you get notification of the next ones. The next one is going to be May 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern. So um, make sure that make sure you put that on your calendar. Um, and again, if you register, we'll send you a link to to put it on your calendar. So. Well, that's what I was going to say is that for anyone that already registered or you are looking to get information on it, that's actually on the website as well. So anyone that looked at it and they're like, hey, I didn't get the email. We did find out that it bounced from some people or that it was spammed or that it went to a few of Outlook. We all know that we now have the focused and not focused or whatever it is, the two categories. And Somehow it sits in the unfocused section of the um, box. So on the website, there's now a menu. 
And on that menu, it will show you all the past recordings and presentations. Additionally, you will also see where it'll give you the link for the upcoming Shop Talk. Additionally, you can add it to your calendar. There is a little widget so you can automatically add it to yours. So it's already added to mine. So you don't like that's all optional on the website. So again, you can go to the website, you can automatically get the link right there. You don't have to wait for an email or panic that you don't have it. It's right there. You can click the day of the moment of or in the middle of the call. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll also send out a notification on SHI connect. So if you've got that on your, on your mobile device, you can get a direct link there as well. So, um, well, Hey, with all of that being said, and and I've got another phone call, I've got to get, (laughs) let's go ahead. Yeah. Let's go ahead and play this interview that I had with Mike Moran from Capstone. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Wes. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out. You know, it's it, you've been one of those people that have been in this industry the entire time I've been in the <laughs> industry, and and we've uh, we've ran into each other before, but haven't had a chance to to really sit down and have a conversation. And when we were prepping for this, you, you gave me a lot of time to kind of go through everything that you know, you've been through with, with capstone and it was, uh, it was pretty enlightening. You know, you think you, you think you, you see a company doing things and, and you think you kind of know that company, but you don't really know them until you sit down with their founder and, and really talk to them. But, you know, I guess the, going back to that, that capstone brand, you know, that's been around the entire time that I've been in this, in this industry. That company, you know, was split into to four companies back in 2012, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but before we get there, you know, other than you being a college student at the University of Alabama, <laughs> which I know you're, I know you're proud of, um, what was kind of your first intersection with student housing? Was it was it a development project? Was it on the management side? I, you know, Mike, I guess what I'm really asking is, how did you get started in student housing? Uh, Wes, I was a one-man development department for a construction company in Montgomery, Alabama, named Algernon Blair, which was named after the man who had started it several generations before. Blair had what they called an open shop division, Castle Construction. And Castle was building a number of what was referred to as kitty condos, kitty condominiums. And uh, in the Southeast. And when I heard that, that was fascinating. So I traveled to the job sites and spent a little time in the various university markets. And what I, I noticed was that there was a lot of excitement on the part of the college students to have a new facility being built uh, specifically targeted to college students. The floor plans were still conventional. Uh, in their design, and the expectation was that there would be two students living in each bedroom, but at least it was they were new, they were relatively close to the campus, and so there was a lot of buzz. And what I also noticed was that some of the residents were willing to pay double rent in order to have a private bedroom, mm-hmm. and and so that began to plant a seed. Uh, And then also, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that the condominium 
format had its own challenges. Most of the time, since this was a relatively new uh, market, the lending banks would require a very high presale before they would release the loan and allow construction to start. Well, all of us in the industry know the importance of being uh, ready to be occupied once fall classes start. And a lot of times the delay in starting construction of the kitty condos caused them to be late. And so uh, because of that natural encumbrance, my thought was to develop the units as apartments rather than condominiums. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, Wes, take, you know, unfolding it a little bit further. It's interesting. You talk about, you know, you've been in the industry 25 years. Well, when I got interested in in student housing was in the early 80s. And I think it would fascinate a lot of you much younger people to realize that back then, there was not really a segment of the market called student housing. Right. I mean, there were certainly apartments and, and houses in that leased or rented to students, but there was really the not a... was just on campus at that point. That's all well, that- it had a lot of on campus, but it had a lot of, uh, you know, facilities around campus. It had some in the markets that really weren't even that close, but the students have to live somewhere. You know, most universities only house a relatively small percentage of their student body. So the other students have to live somewhere, but it was not, there was not a market segment called student housing. Uh, I can remember uh, when I first got interested traveling to the uh, multifamily housing conventions, oftentimes seem like held in Las Vegas. And it was interesting that here was a a large group of people gathered to talk about multifamily, and there was not even a breakout uh, session on student housing. In other words, it it was just not, not, you know, it was not being talked about. Well, I, I found that fascinating when you realize of course, the the number of universities and the you know millions of college students, and the fact that uh, they have to live somewhere. And I thought this was this was an unserved market niche, and I, I found that fascinating. And so we began to try to design units that would uh, offer private bedrooms. Another thing I I noticed in touring the kitty condos is that if you if you have two students staying in a in a larger bedroom you still have to have the travel path from the door into that bedroom to the furthermost uh, bed mm-hmm. and so you have a, a travel path that cannot be encumbered by furniture or anything else so the the thought process uh, I worked with David Demarest of Demarest and Associates, who uh, is an architect in Dallas, and David was the architect on a number of the more successful kitty condominium projects. So I sought him out, and what we did is we basically put the travel path outside the bedroom, and so what we divided the larger bedroom into two smaller bedrooms. 
the the bedroom size probably grew a little bit to accommodate two, but and then we accessed each bedroom off the hall. So what we were doing is giving a private bedroom, yeah. and and the rule of thumb then was that a student would pay a hundred and fifty percent for a private bedroom, a hundred and fifty percent of what they'd pay in a shared bedroom, they'd pay in a in a private bedroom, yeah. and so. Even at the low rents back in the 80s, we were getting about a dollar a square foot in rent. And I know now uh, many markets are north of $2 a square foot, but there's also been a long time between the early 80s and uh, 2022. So a dollar a square foot was actually high rent at the time, and it allowed us to to build specifically designed developments for the students, uh, to amenitize it for the students, to provide enough parking, which was normally short in most conventional apartments if you had multiple students living there. And so we just uh, began to build a a student-specific uh, facility, and it was very well received. So what, I mean, going back to that, uh, the first Kitty Condo project that, that you worked on, uh, you know, outside of you know, before Capstone was developed, what what market was that in? What was actually? I didn't personally work on it. Castle okay. Construction, the a division of Algernon Blair, was building it as general contractor, gotcha. and I simply it was being developed by other people. In fact, it was. It's interesting the uh, the man who was the developer of the Kitty Condo in Tuscaloosa that I contacted. He and I began to talk, and I told him I was thinking about doing student apartments in Starkville. Mm. And he says, student apartments won't work. You know, it's got to be condominiums. And I said, well, I am beg to differ. I'm going to try apartments for yeah. the reasons I, I shared with you earlier. To his credit, he was flying over Starkville, you know, I don't know, a year later or something. And he called me and he said, I told you it wouldn't work. And I flew over your parking lot in Starkville and saw that it was slammed full of cars. So obviously I was wrong. And so, uh, you know, from that point, so Starkville was the first development. Interestingly, it was the first student development I did when I was head of development at uh, Polar Beck. I didn't make the transition. I was... Algernon Blair was headquartered in Montgomery, I think I told you. Yeah. Uh, both my wife, Kathy, and I are from Birmingham, and I got the opportunity to come back to Birmingham as head of development of Polar Beck. And at Polar Beck, the first development, student development I did was at Mississippi State University in Starkville. Gotcha. And so, uh, and then interestingly, when I formed Capstone five years later, the first development we did as Capstone was back in Starkville. Oh, wow. So uh, Mississippi State holds a, a warm spot in my heart when it comes to, to the student housing. Gotcha. So five years later, after that, that first deal in Starkville, uh, you start Capstone, your first projects in Starkville again. Kind of take us through what happened from there to 2012. Well, um, Again, I was uh, head of Polar Beck or development at Polar Beck, and and the more we did student housing, the more my immediate group and I got excited about it, interested in it. 
the companies, the big construction companies for which I was serving as development, head of development, were large commercial construction companies. And I remember one time one of the men said, we're tired of... Uh, of investing in stick frame construction in dusty little small college towns. You know, we want to be in in bigger markets doing commercial type development. Well, that was it, during the period. I, I remember when he said that, uh, I remember this fact. It's funny how you remember little comparisons. There was more vacant space in Dallas, Texas then there was space in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I thought to myself, if if you have the city of Pittsburgh vacant in the heart of Dallas, um, that much space, doing commercial development in major cities didn't make a bit of sense to me. Yeah. So three of the people working with me at Polar Beck and I left and formed Capstone in actually very late 1990. 85 is when I moved to Birmingham. 1990 is when we started Capstone. Gotcha. And three of the uh, my associates and I left at that time to do it. I remember we we had a single office in which I had uh, one desk, three chairs, and there were four of us. So there, were, there was always somebody sitting on the desk or sitting on the arm of a chair or something. And uh, <laughs> That's great. Story. And one of those individuals was, uh, or was John Vauder, mm -hmm. who uh, came to work with me. I think when he was twenty-three years old, and now John is one of the principals at Capstone Communities. I think we'll probably talk about the successor companies to Capstone, and and John's one of the owners of one of those successor companies. Yeah, yeah. So, take us through kind of that those early years? I mean, how long did it take you before you were like, okay, we're, we're a real company. We're, we're going to really do something with, with student housing. How long did that take? Oh, uh, not long because the, the product we were delivering was so being so well received. I remember we opened a project in Auburn and they sent me pictures and the students were camping out overnight the night before we opened the leasing office in order to try to get the the specific unit that they found most attractive. So we had a tent city of students camping out just like they were waiting to get tickets to the final four or something, yeah. you know? And um, uh, I think we, uh, I remember I got a picture that we signed over a hundred leases the first day in Auburn. So it was being so well received that really it, it was just a matter of could we find locations close enough to major campuses. And we started off in the Southeast, you know, almost like Southeastern Conference. And then it seemed like we started working in the uh, the Big Ten area. And we got out into the uh, Southwest Conference area and ultimately, you know, got all the way to the uh, West Coast, uh, developed in uh, Eugene, Oregon. So it was going very well. and. I guess about five years or so of being very active and off campus, we were approached by a number of universities in in varying degrees of, of various ways of contact. And in so many words, they were saying, uh, you and others look like you're successful at recruiting and housing our students off campus, 
we are proof we the university it's proven to be more difficult for us to keep the students on campus you know maybe there's something we could do together mm-hmm. and it was it was interesting because using the same uh, computer model I was using at the time which I'm sure is is so basic now it would be almost laughable but using the same computer model uh, I changed three elements uh, I put zero land costs because the universities own the land I put zero for property taxes because universities don't pay property tax and I uh, used a tax exempt interest rate versus taxable and tax exempt of is of course less expensive so in in making only those three changes and hitting calculate it it said that I should be able to do a development for a hundred percent debt no equity should be required yeah. well that was important because if you think about it if you're trying to finance with tax exempt debt, there really is no opportunity for equity because to get tax-exempt debt, you have to be a not-for-profit. Most not-for-profits don't have equity per se. And so armed with the knowledge that if those three things could be accomplished, I should be able to get 100% debt, I started to look at, okay, how do we accomplish those three things? The easiest was the free land because the university you know, would ultimately lease the land typically for one dollar uh, a year. The uh, avoidance of property tax, the owner of the leasehold improvements had to be a not-for-profit whose charter was, uh, or for doing student housing was eligible within the uh, framework of their charter, mm-hmm. the boundaries of their charter. And I couldn't find any not-for-profit that met that requirement. So we started Collegiate Housing Foundation. And we started uh, Collegiate Housing Foundation, and we applied for and received a 501c3 designation from the IRS. So now we had our the land. Now we had the not-for-profit owner. So the last thing was access to tax-exempt debt. Well, we, we, the first on-campus development Capstone did was a small development at Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. Okay. It's a small Catholic Jesuit school, okay. and we built a 143-bed development, I remember. And, uh, I got to tell you, I, did, I, I, I really didn't know that there were Catholic Jesuit schools in, <laughs> in Alabama. So. There's Spring Hill, and it's been around for a long time. It's a great school. But anyway, so we did that, in, and I forget even which bank took the tax-exempt paper, tax-exempt bonds, and held it in their own portfolio. Okay. But we started to do that, and then we did a couple others, and it occurred to me that this market, this segment, on-campus student housing financed with tax-exempt debt, was going to grow much faster than we could find banks who were willing to keep that much paper in their own portfolio. We, we had to tap the public market. Well, the challenge there was that if, if one does not have a development that is rated by the rating agencies, the rating agencies being Moody's and Standard and & Poor's and Fitch, yeah. 
if the development is not rated, then it sells at what's called junk bond rates, which is, of course, higher. Well, the objective was to lower the interest rates as much as possible so that we got it closer to what the university's source of capital cost in order that the university would not be paying a premium in order to have Capstone or whomever else develop on their campus. So that meant we had to get a rating. I originally had targeted a lady named Mary Peliquin Dodd, a hyphenated name. She was head of uh, head of the academic division of Standard and Poor's at the time. Mary was pregnant, as I recall, and was having difficulty, and she was not working much. And so since I was uncertain as to how long that would be, I turned my attention to John Turner at Moody's. And we began to focus on on Moody's and getting them to recognize the product as being investment grade. Yeah. And and they did ultimately they the first project that I believe was ever deemed to be investment grade was uh, at the University of Central Oklahoma. And it was it was interesting because the University of Central Oklahoma was itself not a rated institution at the time. And yet our housing on their campus was deemed investment grade. (laughs) So it became a a, a BAA three. Uh, Moody's BAA3, which is their lowest investment grade. Well, the fact that we had an investment grade now gave us another opportunity, and that was we could get credit enhancement. And and credit enhancement, the primary source of that was what they called monoline insurance companies. And a monoline, M-O-N-O, meaning, you know, one. And they had that that name because all monoline insurance companies did at that time was insure municipal bond mm-hmm. portfolio. I mean, uh, they would insure municipal bonds. So what you we did is we went to, the, and there were, I think, seven or eight of them at the time, AMBAC and FISLIC and a few others. And so what we would do is we would literally discuss our development with one of the bond insurers, if we could get them to issue a premium, we would, just like any insurance, we would pay a one-time fee at closing for the premium. But our bonds would then be insured to a AAA level. So the bonds for capstone development projects on these campuses were selling at a AAA rate, meaning the interest rate was lower. Yeah. So again, all the effort was to lower the interest rate so that we became closer to the universities. Very few universities themselves are AAA rated. Probably, I mean, it's a handful. And so... The ones with really high endowments to begin with. I, I think so. I think yeah. that's exactly the limit. And and so, I mean, even the University of Alabama may be a double A, and it may buy... Uh, credit enhancement in order to become AAA. It's just a function. I mean, it's a very simple function of how much does the insurance cost, since that would be financed over the 30-year bond issue, how much does how much additional outlay, you know, did that take every year? And was that outlay deemed to be 
better than the alternative, which is selling unrated at a at a higher interest rate. It's, it's a pretty simple calculation to make to see whether the credit enhancement was worthwhile or not. So this sounds like it. That's what really kind of created the vehicle for you guys to to really go crazy with on campus. That's exactly and and unfortunately we unfortunately we could not patent a business approach and so <laughs> so we ran as fast as we could because at the time capstone capstone you. yes capstone was you know had introduced it and was therefore the the leader and so there was a period of time that every RFP that came out that we went after we got yeah. But as we say, you can only do so much each year, and, and it was not hard to to copy the approach because all of this was public information to begin with. Yeah. And so uh, other people began to copy and improve and enhance you know, what we were doing, and that's just the capitalistic market that we all benefit from, all Americans benefit from. Well, pr- prior to 2012, when the, when the companies were split up, how many, how many projects were you guys doing in a year? On campus versus off campus. Well, you know, a lot of times you, you'll be starting a, a project and another one will be finishing, and a lot depends on the length of time. Sometimes yeah. these are, you know, more than a twelve-month project. But I think we would be actively working on maybe six to eight projects, which you know, Capstone would, was not a large company, so we were we were very busy at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's. That's a that's a handful for sure. I mean, I, I know there's some guys out there now that are doing a lot more than that in a year. Yeah, they they also see the slowdown coming, and they're having to. Well, you know, well they're do, they're doing a lot more, and the ones they're doing are a lot larger. So, yeah. um, but again, uh, Capstone has always been a private company. Uh, you know, we never formed a REIT. We never, uh, at the time, really never took institutional money. So we were always limited by the sources of capital, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Now, I do remember a big sell-off that you guys did on the on the off-campus side, I guess going into, let's call it 2002 to 2005, right there when um, I think the big sell-off was to uh, GMH, which was getting right. ready for their IPO, uh, that that really, I mean, that took you guys from a, a really large company from a portfolio, you know, stabilized property standpoint to, to really, you know. I, Sold I most of it, yeah. Yeah, maybe just two or three properties, right? And um, it's funny because people used to ask me about what's my exit strategy. And I used to say my exit strategy is paying off the mortgage. And, uh, but, you know, we were, Finance with a variety of different things, friends and family, and some uh, limited amount of foreign capital and everything else. So it just seemed like the right time to sell. Plus, our product was usually uh, oftentimes four bedroom, two bath uh, was the main workhorse, and people were already developing bed to bath parity. So we thought maybe it was a good time to to sell. And I think I think in retrospect it probably probably was yeah there were a lot of a lot of folks that were that were involved with those transactions uh, with with gmh at that time and we sold the company i was with at the time sold two properties to them leading up to that and and i think they were i can't remember i guess they were probably the second uh, behind acc to become public in the student housing sector 
I think uh, I think you might be right. Then followed by EDR. Yeah. You know, there's a speaking of EDR, there's a there's a part of the student housing market niche that I really would like to learn more about, and that's what Allen and O'Hara did decades yeah. before I started Capstone in doing the large uh, off-campus dormitories. Yeah. And Allen and O'Hara, of course, is the predecessor company to EDR. Yeah. Allen O'Hara uh, was a construction company. And I it, it may be interesting for you to on your student housing insight one time to try to go back and understand. Yeah, we had a recent conversation with, with Miles Orth back in February where, and of course, he's the chief operating officer at, at Campus Apartments, but he actually got started on one of those Allen O'Hara properties when he was in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, yeah, we had a little bit of a of a conversation about you know how that because that's you know Bill Bayless at ACC you know worked on one of those properties. Yeah, and, he and Tom Trubiana both did. I yeah, think. yeah, and so you know it's amazing to see, and it was just a different it was a different structure, a different management structure. You know the the property managers over those uh, over those properties were master real estate folks, you know. <laughs> right. Well, you know what? Uh, I don't know what caused it to. I don't know what caused them to stop building that product. I don't. I don't know if. I think, and this is going by memory, which is dangerous at my age, but uh, I think it was Northwest Mutual was maybe the source of the money. I believe so. And uh, I'm just wondering whether the insurance company lost interest or if it started to have operational difficulties or what. But I think that'd be an interesting story to to learn a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, ho- hopefully we can get some of those folks on at some point in time and, and kind of go through that because it's I followed a lot of. And the thing is, is all of those properties are still in play. They they lease out really well year after year after year. I mean, it's it, yeah, it was amazing what they what they did with that. Well, hey, so let's let's go up into into twenty twelve. You guys are kind of reaching a point where something needs to change, and and everybody's kind of got a different focus with on campus and development and building out portfolios. And, and a lot of times, I get phone calls of saying, hey, who do you know here or there? And what's this about Capstone in Birmingham? And there's, <laughs> there's you know, Capstone Real Estate Investments and there's Capstone on campus. Is it all the same company? So I think it'd probably be beneficial for the for the audience just to, you know, kind of understand why that split up happened and, and what sure. you know, kind of what everybody's focused on now, those different companies. Sure. Glad to. Let me digress just a minute. The name Capstone, I think most people know it as being the stone on top of a column. And since most colleges have columns on their campus, you know, we thought that was appropriate. Capstone, for those of us who live in Alabama, is also a term that is synonymous with the University of Alabama. Mm -hmm. If it has a headline that says news from the Capstone, it means news from the University of Alabama. So being an Alabama grad, that was kind of fun to, you know, both uh, have a nod to my alma mater and and then have a uh, a name that's synonymous or perceptually appropriate for most university campuses. But there's even something more subtle. There, the less known definition of the word capstone is a person's lifetime crowning achievement. Mm-hmm. 
it's the that individual's capstone is their lifetime crowning achievement. So uh, I think it's a very appropriate play that certainly Capstone Development Corp was my business lifetime crowning achievement. You know, my wife and family are my life's crowning achievement, but from business, it's Capstone. So I just think it's interesting that a, a name that is thrown around a lot, a lot of people don't know the relation to the university and I, almost nobody knows the the more subtle definition of the of the term but i thought that uh, just no, a little little tri- little trivia little yeah. trivia in 2010 i was 60 years old and i started thinking about the succession of capstone i owned all the i own all the stock in capstone development corp i had a number of people who were who had what's called a profits interest up to 50 total between them, uh, total fifty percent of the comp- uh, profits of the company went to the individuals, key individuals working with me at the time. So, but I had a, uh, I owned all the stock, and I thought it was time for us to start thinking about succession. My three sons were working uh, in the company at that time, but you know that was also uh, twelve years ago. Uh, my oldest son Drew is now forty-two. Christopher's 40 and Lewis is 37. So 12 years ago, they were a good bit younger and and not prepared uh, experience-wise or even desired to try to take over the, the company. And and I can assure you with, with three sons in the business, I don't know how in the world I would have selected one to run the company and what that would have done, what that would have meant at Thanksgiving table, you know. <laughs> But from the other two, but so I kind of toyed with selling the company, and actually the two most prominent suitors, and that may be exaggerating a little bit, but were two um, very large international construction companies. They will go nameless, but one was from England and one was from Australia, okay. and both sent representatives here, and we entered into dialogue and everything. And I just could not get comfortable with what that would mean for the people who remained at at the company, uh, how that would change their lives. You know, I would take X amount of dollars and go my merry way, but I worried about the other people because, you know, they had worked with me so very long and so loyally. And I was, I know Kathy and I were visiting a friend of ours, a couple friend of ours down in Seagrove or Seacrest or somewhere in somewhere in Florida, and he had sold the company they owned in Atlanta, and they had moved down there, and they had a beautiful home, and out on the dock was a a huge boat. I mean, a boat big enough that he had to go to a course to learn how to captain it. Yeah, it was it was that big. Yeah, and he said, you know, you would think I should be living a great life here. And he said, I am, but he said, every time I call back to the office in Atlanta uh, and talk to the people, they are so miserable that it just ruins that day. And about two days after it for me that I think I'm down here living the life of Riley and they're up in Atlanta, miserable. And I remember I walked out of their house. We said goodbye and walked out before I even got in the car. I told Kathy, I said, that does it. I'm not selling capstone and going through that. 
So then I began to try to figure out, okay, if you're not selling it, what are you going to do with it? I couldn't put any one individual in charge of Capstone, kind of for the same reasons I talked about with my sons. You know, a lot of these people had worked with me 20 years or so, and and to try to select one to become uh, president and over the others, I thought would have uh, not been very well received by some. So then I began to look at the fact that Capstone seemed to break into four separate and distinct divisions. We really didn't call them divisions at the time because it was one company, you know, and we didn't have to make that type of designation. And so I began to look and it it just came to me that I should break Capstone into four separate companies and in effect put in business the people who were running those divisions. And so we started talking about that in 2011, maybe toward late 2010. And I had set as the target, okay, I will retire January 1st, 2013. And I thought it would take us that long to do everything that needed to be done to divide the one company into four. And I, I think one thing I, I laughingly said, I always thought the people at Capstone worked real hard, but as soon as they knew that they were going to own their own company, they found a fifth gear I didn't know they had. <laughs> that's, that's and they, uh, and and so we were actually able to to do everything we needed to by January first, two thousand twelve. So we actually accelerated my retirement a year because everything was done, and they were biting at the the bit to you know yeah. go off on their own. You know, it's interesting. And I've been told this by a number of people, having a profits interest in a company is good, but it still is not having ownership. So I divided the company, Capstone uh, Development Partners. The principals are Jeff Jones and Bruce McKee. And that successor company focuses on on on-campus development or development undertaken in direct affiliation with the universities. Gotcha. Capstone, uh, Capstone Collegiate Communities, which has now been shortened to Capstone Communities, the principals are Rob Howland, John Vauder, and Ben Walker. And they started off doing new development of student housing off campus mm-hmm. with no affiliate, no direct affiliation with the university. Uh, Capstone on-campus management, which now I think just goes by COCM, is the only company whose name tells you what they do. They uh, manage on-college campuses, uh, college and university campuses, either for the university itself or the university's foundation. They own no property. Uh, They're feed uh, fee managers only, and I believe they're the largest on campus of properties owned by the university or the uh, university's foundation. Some other private companies manage their own properties on campus and are bigger than COCM. But And then lastly is Capstone Real Estate Investments, which is owned by Kathy's and my three sons, and they were doing, they were acquiring existing student properties and repositioning it. And this repositioning 
can be rather minor and just be mostly a managerial maybe improvement, but sometimes it's significant. They may literally add bathrooms. They may divide four-bedroom units uh, into two different apartments. Oftentimes, they make significant changes. They they took one of the off-campus dormitories in DeKalb, Illinois, and it had two towers. I think it was eight stories each, each tower, with a large common area in between. And I think they did something like added 258 kitchens, and they combined units into apartments and, and took it from an off-campus uh, dormitory to an off-campus apartment by making just massive changes. So that's what Capstone Real Estate Investments does. Gotcha. That's a, it's an incredible story. And, I, you know, it, I think it goes to show, uh, you know, your, your thoughtfulness and to both kind of, a, you know, being able to leave, leave a legacy, but also to reward the folks that, that got you there. Well, you know, if you think about it, except for COCM, the other three companies are primarily developers. Mm-hmm. Now, each of them, each of them have their own management, uh, in-house management capacity. Right. But at the at the core, they're developers. Well, you're as a developer, you're usually only as good as the next deal, and yeah. so it's really to me would be difficult to try to get an a, an effective development company to pay the owner much money since in effect they are the assets yeah. it's like somebody said your assets get on the elevator every night to go home you know <laughs> and so uh, that's why uh, people say well how much did you sell them their companies for i said i didn't i gave it to them but all i really gave them was if you think about it was the ability to use the capstone name, which we had all collectively worked very hard to make a name that was well-received within the industry. And so they had worked as hard as I had to do that. So given them what, uh, you know, I felt like I was simply giving them what they had worked long and hard uh, to earn. And I'm proud to say that, you know, that was now 10 years ago and all four of the companies are thriving and growing and doing very well. So I, I tell people, I don't uh, necessarily take a lot of credit, but I will take credit for hiring good people. And yeah. uh, I think that's been proven by the success of the four uh, successor companies. Absolutely. How, how involved with those companies are you today? Uh, minimally involved. I think uh, I'm supposed to have a uh, conversation Later today with Rob Howland and John Vauder about a, an asset we still own together, but uh, um, minimally involved. And so, uh, and and people asked me one time, they said, well, aren't you offended that uh, you're not being called upon more to, you know, be involved? And I said, no, you don't understand. I said, the less they call me, the better, because that makes me realize I am no longer responsible for their well-being. And, you know, I felt I felt like I was uh, responsible for far too many people for far too long. So I said, the people showing their independence and doing well is just really uh, emotionally very rewarding to me. Yeah, it's a huge compliment. So. Yeah, I want to I want to talk a little bit about you know your thoughts on on the industry and and that type of thing. But before we get to that, 
you talked about the capstone and kind of the crowning achievement. And previously, you and I had a had a conversation about you know a, a project that you guys did in, in Birmingham for for veterans. And you know, in a lot of ways, uh, you know that that kind of seems like a, a crowning achievement there because some things you were able to pull off were were just incredible. You mind telling the audience a little bit about? No, that? I'd, I'd be glad to because I I. I'd both suggest and challenge success, uh, successful developers to undertake something in their home community along these lines. You know, find something that you're passionate about. And most most charities have some real property needs. And so uh, if a qualified, successful developer can find something that they're passionate about, chances are there could be a project that's well suited for them. And there's nothing I'm personally more passionate about than the U.S. Armed Forces, you know, the the men and women who in uniform who put themselves in harm's way and allow you and I to sit here and, and drink coffee and have this pleasant conversation. I don't I don't yeah. think we can thank them enough or do enough for them. And uh, I feel especially that way about those that are injured in that role. And there is a wonderful organization in Birmingham called Lakeshore Foundation. And Lakeshore Foundation is really like a, think of it as almost a YMCA for people with physical challenges. Mm -hmm. And in addition to providing that facility for those of us who live in Birmingham, Lakeshore has an outreach where they reach out to injured military across the country. And they bring the injured military into Birmingham at no cost. And they have weekend camps where they're basically trying to expose the injured military to uh, physical activities that maybe the injured military person did not uh, feel comfortable trying or had never done before or thought maybe they used to do it, but they couldn't do it any longer. And Lakeshore does a great job of, of pushing those people into activities and causing them to realize that while they have certainly lost something, they haven't lost everything, and they can do a lot more than maybe they thought they could. The injured military used to live uh, in the dormitory on the Lakeshore Foundation campus during these camps, but okay. the family members they brought with them had to stay in hotels. Well, that was missing the point of trying to keep the family unit intact while the injured military went through this weekend camp, because part of it was not only training the injured military as to what he or she could still do, but it was getting that injured military's family to realize that their loved one had more, maybe more uh, capability than they thought to do things and to, to not coddled them too much because that just perpetuated the you know apparent inability to do things i remember one wife said uh he'll never be able to tell me he can't take the trash out anymore you know and (laughs) so um anyway the uh, uh capstone we were just moved to to do something for lakeshore and so we committed to build what's called the cottages at lakeshore on the campus and uh, we built 10 units uh, for the injured military families, the injured military and their family to live at 
while they're at these camps. And it was just uh, especially uh, rewarding. There, there were a hundred companies in Birmingham, uh, Birmingham and elsewhere, involved in that development. Some obviously to a much greater degree than others, but and then we we also sold naming rights. Uh, I laughingly said it's like it looked like a uh, a NASCAR. You know, we we had naming rights stuck on everything that was stationary, um, and we were able to complete the development and at no cost to Lakeshore and actually gave them a check for almost $400,000, I think, going by memory, you know, to, to apply towards what they call the Lima Foxtrot program, which is the, the camp for the injured military. But quickly, I thought it was interesting that the suppliers who sent material sent their very best material. They didn't, they didn't send a, a 10 year warranty roof or a 15 they sent the the 30 year architectural detailed roof the the windows were the top of the line window the the uh, grills were gen air grills not you know not some other lesser quality so everything pe- the people did in giving it was was the top of the line and i thought that just showed how much americans care about the uh the military and what they've done for us to, to to put forth their best foot. In fact, the people on the job, the contractors said, you know, my workers seem to be doing an especially high quality job on this one. They said, uh, we're, we're just struck by how uh, every nail is driven straight. And if it's not, they pull it out and do it again. And uh, so it was inspiring. And then we had the grand opening on uh, Veterans Day. 2010, I think. And uh, I tell people, we've, we've done a number of projects. Capstone Communities did a similar project at Glenwood, which is another fine entity outside of Birmingham. And it's for uh, people suffering with autism. And Rob and John and Ben took it upon themselves to build some some residential units at Glenwood under the same arrangement. So I think it it is very fulfilling to the the person in charge, but I think it also is fulfilling to everybody in your company. And I think it also serves to, to give your company a reputation in the community that is something you strive to achieve. So it's, it's, it's a win, win, win. Yeah. I remember when, uh, when some things came out in the press about it and um, it just the, the coordination that it took, and you know getting getting people to to buy into it you know it's yeah it's not it's not a hard thing i mean no one's going to say no i don't want to help the veterans right um well a few people tried uh, you know i think maybe i told you when we first visited that i can't stand asking people for money and or to do me a favor or whatever uh, except in the situation when it in, involved the injured military and the few people who tried to turn me down or, or do less than I thought they were capable of, you know, I, I felt like, you know, and I, I did at times say, maybe I didn't make myself clear. This is for people who got injured protecting you and me. Yeah. So, you know, don't tell me you're not going to do what I'm asking, you know? <laughs> and, and so I, I, I went from being hesitant to uh, asking people for money to probably being blunt and rude about my expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, 
It, it's been a while. You know, I've I've seen it on the on the website. I've never seen it in person, but it's a it's a beautiful little community. And well, yeah. it, it's twelve years old now, and it's actually prettier than the day we opened it because the landscaping is matured and yeah. and and Lakeshore Foundation is doing a, a wonderful job uh, maintaining it. Lake Lakeshore is an Olympic and Paralympic facility. And it's the home of the U.S. rugby team, the wheelchair rugby team. Okay. And you talk about a rough group of guys is the, <laughs> the guys who play rugby in a wheelchair. I'm thinking of I'm just, uh, just, just, what just, looks like. just, just picture collisions in wheelchair. Okay. <laughs> and I asked uh, the, the people who run Lakeshore, I said, well, does the rugby team stay in the cottages when they're on campus? And they said, heck no. They said, those guys are so rough. We won't let them stay in the cottages. We make them stay in the dormitory. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but it's, uh, as I said, it's all good. And I, I would encourage anybody hearing it that has the capacity to do something like that, to undertake it. It's, it's it, You'll be glad you did once yeah, it's, it's done. Great, it's a great team building both your internal team and kind of your external team uh, of, you know, pulling, pulling things together to do that. Yeah. And like I said, is uh, there's just, it's always good. The subcontractors, you know, I think appreciated being included. We, we published a book of uh, my sister actually did the book. And, and what we did is we had all the people who participated write letters about why they did it, notes or emails or whatever about why they did it. And my sister took those and put them all in a book along with pictures and everything. And and so we were giving them out to the to the family members who come and yeah. stay there. And it just is a book of people just thanking them for their service and sacrifice. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Mike, let's let's kind of move forward to to the future and, and talk about kind of your thoughts on on student housing because I mean you've seen so much you've you've created so much I mean as you were sitting here talking about the you know the the cottages at Lakeshore I was thinking yeah you guys had experience with that because you know you. You guys were, you know, kind of one of the first to introduce that cottage product to purpose-built student housing. And, and so, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking over the past couple of decades and, and the things that you guys have, have been involved with, it's got to give you, you know, the ability to kind of forecast what, you know, you're seeing now. You know, we've got population drop-off, college-age students with, uh, you know, going certainly into, into 2025, the pandemic you know, impacted a lot of things on, you know, how we thought about or how we think about education, specifically higher education. What's, what, what's your thoughts on the future of student housing? Well, you know, interesting, you talk about the cottages that really, what do they say? A lot, most good ideas are stolen. Um, (laughs) There was a man developing kind of a cottage development decades before we started doing it. And it was the called the Mill District, again, back in Starkville. Yeah, I remember. And it had a lot of little different homes and garages converted and everything. And it just became a charming little neighborhood. So that, uh, since we were obviously in Starkville a good bit, uh, we began to try to think of how do we take the ability to create something like this and, and do it you know, more broadly. I think the first one we did was done in uh, Auburn maybe, 
and it was Creekside Development. And that was done as condominium because it was it was big and and it was relatively expensive to do in the manner we did it. But Creekside today, if you drive through the gates, it's kind of like I said about the cottages at Lakeshore. It's actually prettier than when we delivered it because the landscape is mature. Yeah. I mean, this this looks like a a quaint neighborhood. And so, uh, uh, you know, we had done that some time back, and Capstone Communities is continuing now to build cottages of that nature for for rent uh, yeah. and doing very well with it. Yeah. On the, uh, are you talking about more from the, the bill to rent? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how student housing folks, especially those that have been involved uh, on the cottage side that they're now getting involved in, in that. And, and the uh, lenders and investors, you know, like, yeah, these guys are made, you know, these guys were made for this. So. <laughs> it, they, they're well suited and they're doing a great job. In fact, uh, my sons and I uh, have invested in several of them and proud, proud to do it. Well, what's your, what's your outlook on student housing moving forward? Well, um, I'm I'm probably I'm probably more cautious than well, a lot of people would be, but uh, I've probably been more cautious all my life than maybe would have been. Maybe I'd have been well served to be a little bit more aggressive. Um, uh, but you know, as you said, it's it's a uh, the number of college students are finite. Now it can grow a little bit. I realize in the International students can come back in 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 a greater way, maybe in the future. But still, it's there's a certain inelasticity to that yeah. market. Yeah, I think uh, you know you run the risk now with everything becoming so electronic. Or more, is there going to be a lot of students who choose to basically stay at home and get their education remotely versus go to college? That. That's a risk. It doesn't sound like any fun to me, but uh, you know that that's a risk. I think the the high cost of new construction and the high cost of land and everything else, taxes, property taxes going up, makes it so the new product can only appeal to a certain element of the student population. Yeah, yeah at least those that don't go into terrible debt to to try to get their education and. So I think there there needs to be a, a degree of caution. But then, you know, I think, Wes, the main difference, I think, between when I started Capstone and now is is the source of the capital. If you think about it, uh, back when I started, if you didn't have the money yourself, it was mostly friends and family equity, as we used to call it, mm-hmm. and bank loans, and then maybe you rolled it into an insurance permanent loan type. But, uh, you know, I never heard the term sovereign capital back in the 80s and institutional money and all these funds and everything that is just such a, a vast amount of capital chasing yield and chasing deals in so many different markets. And I think if if the people doing the development and everything, if it's if it's not their money and if they if they're not guaranteeing it, you know, uh, my wife and I for Capstone, 
we had to personally guarantee everything Capstone did. Yeah. And and there's not that same uh, risk, I guess. Yeah. And so, therefore, the risk reward is, to me, arguably out of balance because there's very little risk and the reward comes to some fee developers and that only if they develop. Yeah. And so I, I think there, there could be some, uh, what was the term people used to use for the stock market at times? There could be some irrational exuberance. Um, <laughs> so I, I think there needs to, to be some, thought given to that and but again it's the source the source of the money is the, really what dictates whether yeah you know it's it's not developers claiming to have a great idea it's the source of money being willing to to back the people that creates the product i mean yeah. fun you know fuels the product uh, coming so until that slows up i suspect it will continue yeah. fast and furious so one thing I love about what your sons are doing, you know, with the, with the renovations, because the, there's so much stuff that was built in the, in the nineties and, and even early two thousands now that could really, that they're great assets and, and they've probably transitioned, you know, hands three or four times you know, at this point. And, well, but they really never had the, the renovation that they needed. So. It's interesting. My sons have actually purchased some of the developments that, capstone did originally <laughs> and, and and you ought to hear them criticize me on uh deferred maintenance or you know dad we, we didn't know you built such a cheap product you know we've had to go back in and i said wait a minute now uh you know we we, we haven't owned that product for a long time don't you know don't talk to me about wh what you're finding so uh crazy how things come back around like that. so uh anyway well hey listen i i Again, I thank you for the for the time. And before, you know, just want to ask a, a question on behalf of our audience because you know most of our audience are site level managers, regional managers, folks on that on that operation side. And you know, they may have most of them have been involved since they were you know in college, and now they've kind of been in this full time for you know five years or so, and they're they're really kind of asking themselves. You know, is this is this something I want to make a, a career out of? And just want to kind of get your perspective. You know, what what kind of advice? Not necessarily you should make a career out of this, but you know, what kind of advice would you give for for that audience member that is thinking about moving into something else within student housing um, or within real estate development? What's your what's your advice for them? Well, I guess again, going back to my age, I get asked by a lot of people similar questions about, you know, what, what might I pursue post college or whatever. And I always tell people the same thing, find something you're passionate about. And if you can identify something you're passionate about and chances are, you'll be good at it. If uh, every, every day of doing something you're passionate about really is not a day of work. It's uh, a day of pursuing your passion. I meant uh, again, we talked about my dividing capstone into four companies in 2012. Well, here it is 10 years later. I'm now 72 years old and I still work six or seven days a week pursuing a variety of uh, 
developments, you know, from my own account, non-student oriented, but from my own account, simply because I just love real estate development. So I think um, if people are in student housing and they're not passionate about that aspect of it, maybe they need to look at a different aspect of student housing. And, you know, I always challenge people. I've always tell my sons, if, if you're learning something frequently as part of your job, chances are you have a good job. So if, if, if you can find something you're passionate about, and if you feel like you're learning something frequently pursuing that work, then chances are you're in a, you're in a good place and you'll do well. I mean, like I said, as even at my age and my experience, I still feel like I learned things. I'm doing t- developmental uh, developments now of a type that I've never done before. I, I did a hotel. I've done a number of uh, restaurants. Uh, in food and beverage venues, I'm doing a, a um, industrial park outside of Birmingham, uh, all of which uh, certainly has elements of, of real estate development, but it has nuances that I had not done before. So I find, I find that interesting. And I feel very lucky to have chosen a profession that I can continue to work at. My, my wife of 45 years is glad I have a profession I can work at too or otherwise i'd be at home and under her foot so it, it works out well for both of us well fantastic and yeah I, that's that's great advice it is something that i think if you're i i'm amazed at, at how passionate i still am about student housing because it's it's something that you know i've seen a lot of folks get burned out really quick both on the operations and the development side but it's just something every day i think a lot of it is you know part of you know, you know your impact in the future in some way. And, uh, you know. I, th- I thought it was funny that somebody says, you know, those of us who have been in this industry, they say, here we are, we're aging, and our customer never ages. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know every year there's another uh, inflow of freshmen. So, you know, they, they, yeah. they look younger and younger, and we look, I look older and older. So there's something, you know, yeah. something wrong with that, yeah, that formula. Matthew McConaughey movie where, yeah, he, he's, we get older and they all stay the same age. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, again, thanks so much for, for giving us your time and, and, you know, just imparting some of this history and, and knowledge on, on our audience. I think we're all better for it and um, looking forward to student housing business and, and interface giving you the lifetime achievement award in Austin uh, next month and uh, excited to, to see you there and get to shake your hand. And again, just thanks for everything that you've, you've done here for this podcast, but also just for what you've done for the industry. Well, thank you, Wes. I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you in Austin also. All right. Take care. Well, again, a big thanks to to, to Mike for spending uh, so much time with us and, and giving us that that history lesson on what you know he's been involved with and the impact that his company has made. I should say his companies at this point <laughs> have made mm-hmm. in the industry, and obviously he'll be attending Interface. So if uh, if you're if you're going to be attending and you see him there, make sure you say hello to him and that you heard about him on the on the podcast.
Greta, any any final thoughts? No, not at all. Love it. Hope everybody loved it as much. All right, guys. Thanks again. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.